Frightcast on this Sunday evening. Uh, with me tonight, we have a guest, which is great, um, but we'll get to him shortly. Um, with us, or we have some usual faces. We have uh, Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. And Mark Canty. The Mark from the Pit. <laughs> and our special guest tonight, uh, CC Adams. Evening, people. Hi, everybody. Right, so, CC. Who are you? What do you do? Tell us about yourself. Um, yeah, I am a London native, born and raised in the capital and proud of. I write mostly horror fiction, some dark fiction. And as much as I love the city that I'm born and raised in and still live in, most of my work is based in and around London. And given the the breadth and scope of the city, whether it's uh, food, whether it's scenery, whether it's entertainment, culture, cultural diversity, and all, and all the rest of it. This is why I always try and bring London to life in my work as a character, like the protagonist and the antagonist. It's, yeah, I'm just proud to call it home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are incredibly prolific. You're, you're not just a writer, you just write all the time. You're an absolute machine when it comes to writing. It's sickening, absolutely. And I mean, I love the fact, like, you know, like you say, London is such like you know, a well-described character. I mean, there's some books where describe London, and you're thinking, mm, no, that doesn't ring true. I mean, I've done it myself one time. I think when you uh, did, um, did a proofread of one of my stories, you kind of um, picked up the fact of, like, you know, if you drive, the only way you get a certain view is if you're actually driving down the Thames. And I think you kind of really kind of bring that embedded element of being in London and living and breathing it really to the fore of your writing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It is, um, I suppose, with how many years of experience of not only living in the city, but going out in the city, um, various areas. I mean, I live in Southwest, which is an area called Tooting, which is halfway between Clapham and Wimbledon. There are... <laughs> Various places in and around London that I have been to and would have been to. So it doesn't matter whether I'm travelling on the Northern Line, also known as the Misery Line to the Natives. <laughs> it's black for a reason. Uh-huh. It's, it's the it, colour of depression, isn't it? You get on that those trains. It is. And, and I was actually refreshing my memory on this only recently, in fact. I believe it was originally called the Misery Line because the... I'm not sure whether legacy is the right word, but those trains were old. So when you had um, you had lines like, I suppose, the Circle Line and the Victoria Line had the the modern-looking trains. The the trains on the Northern Line, the Misery Line, those were the trains that were the old, grey, shabby ones. And I think even the flooring was the, like, the slatted wood kind of effect. Yeah. This probably from around the time that there was a King's Cross fire. Long story short, those trains were old. So I can write about um, about time spent doing a commute on some parts of London Underground. When I used to, f- when I first started buying Kangol hats, which I still wear, I'd gone up to Camden Market and those kind of shops around there. The Jazz Cafe, which is also in Camden, is a place I've been to when I've had friends visit from out of town and I want to take them around London. I don't want to do the touristy stuff like yeah. 
like taking them to places like the Shard, maybe take them up to Canary Wharf and see the plaza and where Smolensky's used to be and that, and that kind of stuff. And um, as Peter Mark May had once said, you can always tell when CC has written something because in his work, there are people eating. And <laughs> yeah. one of the great things about the capital is the range of food and restaurants you get beyond the likes of uh, Chinese or Indian, if you like, for your bog standard takeaways, if there's such a thing. You get your Lebanese, your Persian, your Afghan, your Japanese, your Brazilian barbecue. You used to get Mongolian barbecue, a few boroughs from me, um, a few tube stops rather. So yeah, long story short, having been all over London and experienced that much of it, it's, I would be doing it a great injustice if I did not bring this shit to life. <laughs> yeah, that's. Oh, I mean, what you said about the food is spot on. I mean, um, I love Chinese food, and <laughs> back way back when I was doing uh, Shaolin Kung Fu, um, one Chinese year, the the Sifu, the teacher of the school, um, busy hired a bus for us all to go down to uh, London and visit Chinatown on the Chinese year, and he introduced us to his teacher, and basically he was Yap, uh, Sifu Yap Liu, and. What was great was he took us all out for a meal, not toward the kind of touristy Chinese, but the the real, genuine, proper Chinese restaurant. Yep. And that was absolutely indescribable. It was unlike anything else. I think you do get that because I, um, I've got a lot of Chinese, sort of British born Chinese friends um, in Manchester, um, loads of them. And every like there used to be it's not here anymore which is a shame it's a place called Quackmans in uh near the town hall uh in manchester and uh our friend tony wong would always bring us there um at the end of a night and it was like we would get the chinese they, they would come out and they would see a bunch of white guys and they would just sort of like come out with the normal sort of like you know english menus that you would get and then my mate tony would go no 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 no, no. we'll have the chinese menus and you get the Chinese menus and uh, you'd have um, like so the food was so good. Like, and I cannot find it anywhere else now. Yeah. It's just so, so, so good. Um, and it's, it's authentic Chinese food. None of this, not the stuff that you get. The, uh, the, I'm like, oh my God, my girlfriend's now banging at the door. She doesn't bring keys. You you carry on. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, it yeah, seems like, like my, my boss Sorry. is Indian. And um, when we go out and do stuff for business and he'll take us out somewhere, he's like, we have to go here. We have to go there. I'm ordering. I'm and just like pile stuff on. And um, a couple of years back, they sent me over to Ahmedabad to visit our office over there. And so I was there for a week and every night I got taken somewhere different. And every night I just got, I got food, just got pushed at me. Try this. It's good. You're right. It is good. It looks weird, but it is good. <laughs> There, I haven't got a clue what half of it was. I had uh, there was always this sort of uh, it's what they called it was called like foot, this is a really weird sort of conversation to have, but we had it was like um, it was called football they called it football rice and basically what it was was sort of like fried rice with like um, Chinese sausage and um, like mange too and stuff like that but it was covered in like an egg um, like. And it kind of looked like a football, and I love that stuff, man. I love that. I can't find it anywhere, and I, I'm I'm gutted because I love it. It's so nice, so nice. Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, correct me if I'm wrong, CC. So we jump in tracks here a bit. It was like, um, you're a horror writer, dark, dark fantasy horror. That I mean, but you do not watch modern horror films. 
I I do know, which is um, which is something has been met with everything from, I suppose to to surprise to straight out derision. My well, one of my closest friends, uh, my sister from another Mister. This actually came up in in Toronto a couple of years or so ago because she actually lives in Toronto. When I get out there in the summer for um, Fan Expo, amongst other things, Fan Expo is like the Canadian equivalent of of Comic Con, to, to put it in the simplest terms. So, among other things, when we hang out, we go to Fan Expo. And I think at this point, she had mentioned going to a particular uh, panel or viewing or some such at Fan Expo. And I said, no, we can't do that. She's like, why not? Because it's horror. Yes, yeah, so I don't watch horror. No, 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 I don't watch horror. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. And she gave me a look as if to say, and you full of shit. <laughs> and, and just to see the sheer surprise and derision on her face. <laughs> and and in, in all the years I've known her, there's only been about three times I've seen her expression change from something which is all sweetness and light. The, the first time was because I've, I've known her for about, uh, I can't do the count, but since 2005, so shit, about 15 years. But anyway, mm-hmm. it was more like maybe some 10 or so years ago. And the group of us who, who had met up in Toronto, we had done the Marmite experiment because apparently Marmite isn't as much of a thing over there as it would be here. So... Her being intrigued and wanting to try this shit out, she has done just that. And the look on her face <clears throat> when she'd actually tried uh, Marmite, the best way to describe it was mortified. <laughs> yeah, that's not fun. I, I, I know you, you either love it or you hate it. Like when um, in Friends and Fee- um, not Phoebe, sorry, where Monica has made these brownies uh, with oh, mock chocolate. And Rachel comes out with a line, I can't believe it. Is it that good? No, I can't believe you let me put this thing in my mouth. And then she goes, oh, oh, this must be what evil tastes like. That mortified is the look that my friend had on her face. The other time was, um, this is actually relatively recent, from a couple of years back. We had been to see, at Fan Expo, in fact, we'd been to see a panel with an actor called Wallace Shawn, who, among other things, I believe was not only in The Prince's Bride, he was in um, Young Sheldon, and one, one of those actors with, they're, they're not necessarily, I suppose, marquee value, uh, actors, if there's such a thing, but he's got a long and yeah. somewhat varied and impressive body of work. But Inconceivable. When, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Inconceivable. He did Rex in Toy Story, didn't he? Did he? Apparently so. Oh, okay. I, I seem to recall his name from somewhere. Uh, something to do with Rex. I cannot remember Toy Story, but again, given how how much longevity the man has, it wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Yeah, that's true. He's in the where he's to give a talk on his body of work and the 
at some point the audience get to ask questions. But in an hour slot, <coughs> the moderator had fucked it all up, was talking about this, that, and the third, and some obscure theater production the man had been in. And as a result, there was only about 10 minutes left at the end for everyone to ask questions. And looking over at said friend who looked at me and to say, you full of shit when I told her I don't watch horror. To see the look on her face, she's looking at the moderator like, let me get the fuck out. Now, <laughs> she would never say that, but to see the look on her face like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So in all the 15 years or so I've known her, those are the. The three times where I've caught that look from her, and one time playing directly at me, and I, I don't have it in that shit. But to bring that shit back on topic, no, I don't watch horror anymore. I've grown up watching stuff like Rabid, Scanners, and American Wolf in London, The Evil Dead, The Kindred, um, Poltergeist. The stuff, have you ever seen that? The yogurt one um, um, put me off yogurt for years. <laughs> oh god, yeah, that's classic. I don't think I have. Oh man, it, there's been for for all the films that I reeled off the names of that I can remember. There are some that I mm. I probably can't. Monkey shines, for example, uh, a chimp with a straight razor. That's one that's just come to mind. But, um, <laughs> wow. That's not one that I that usually comes to the forefront when people ask about uh, horror films from way back. But yeah, to, to answer your question, I've I've seen a fair amount of horror films which have now damaged me to that point where I I, I can't watch them anymore. Mm-hmm. I know some people watch horror films and they like the scares, but for me, it is not <clears throat> it, it is not an enjoyable experience to feel that that chest tightening sensation, that sense of dread that someone's going to go freaky-eyed or someone's going to have a mouthful of fangs or um, in the case of The Fly with Seth Brundle, his eyes slop out of his head. And when I saw that, I was that close to passing out, really. Yeah. And if I didn't run from the time, I would have. So, I, I, under- yeah. I understand that because I, I, I don't mind the odd horror film now and again. But I will never actively seek out to watch a horror film um, because, yeah. like I, you know, I have a very vivid imagination and I have nightmares mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I just don't bother. I am like, you know, uh, th- th- what 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 takes the edge and what will take the edge of watching horror films is maybe get yourself um, another another half who is shit like super scared of, of horror films. And then it takes the edge off of it because my girlfriend <laughs> literally cannot watch even like scary things in comedy shows without freaking out. And it's hilarious. And it sort of takes the edge off the entire thing. And that's, <laughs> that's what yeah, I Yeah, not quite as bad as my wife, but similar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think a bit like me, Cece, in that you like the mashups. You like kind of sci-fi horror, like Alien and Aliens, and where it's not the sole focus, but more it's an element of the overall experience of the film. I mean, I... I like the element. In terms of, of horror stories, I I like the stories. I would gladly read more of them if I wasn't writing so often. Yeah. But um, see, this, this uh, apologies if, if this is a, a digression, but from from an early age, 
when I got to the point after watching how many horror films from the likes of David Cronenberg and uh, and Tony <laughs> and, and and those kinds of people, when I got to the stage that I couldn't watch horror films anymore, I still was fiending for that narrative. So what my oldest brother, I'm the youngest of three sons, no sisters, is my oldest brother who who damaged me and bringing all the horror films in, in, into the house. What he would then do, he would actually tell me this is what happens in the film and the film is about this and this happens and this happens and then <laughs> this happens because I still want to get in on the story but I can't watch it because it's such an unsettling experience so he would tell me the story <laughs> and this is why for even for how I write now the way that I that I outline my work the way that I do a synopsis is very much like if you went to Wikipedia for a particular film, say for the sake of argument, Insidious, and you were to read under plot on the Wikipedia page for yeah. Insidious, the same way that the plot is laid out is the same way that I write a synopsis. Because from an early age, the way that the story is described to me is what will engage me. So that is how mm-hmm. I write. So I can't necessarily watch horror because of how it's presented on screen. It's still disturbing. But where some people have an issue with reading horror, because it's your imagination and your imagination gets the better of you and you don't know what's <laughs> going to happen to all the rest of yeah. it. I'm not one of them. Yep. That's, that's fair. read horror books. And, and I suppose like a lot of things, you... you not to denigrate people, you get some at one end of the scale which are are really bad. At the other end of the scale, you get some which are really good. And some come in flavors different to the others. Some might be more gross out, some might be more visceral, some might be more subtle, some might be more quiet horror and all the rest of it. But um, for all the books I've read, there is only one that truly made my skin crawl. It is one of my favorite horror books. And that being said, it doesn't stop me from reading it again and again. Mm. I have that level of comfort with a book. I do not have that level of comfort with anything on screen that I can physically see. It's not a pleasant experience. Mm. So I just watch them anymore. So what what was that book? What is that book? It is um, Joe Donnelly. And... This is another story behind this story. There's, um, I think I might have mentioned this to you a while back, I can't remember. The the novel by Ray Russell, Incubus, if you've ever read that or heard of that, or, or the film. I know of it. Mm-hmm. I know of it. Because this was one of the books I read when I was that much small. Again, my oldest brother damaged me in this sense. So the same way he would bring in, um, he... Back then, it, it wasn't DVDs, it was VHS. You'd bring yeah. videotapes into the house. Mm. When you rent films, I don't think Blockbuster was even a thing back then. Ah, oh, Blockbuster, where are you now? <laughs> and it would be a two-day rental, and I think at some point, he might have brought the Incubus video into the house. He certainly brought the book. But you can't remember any and everything from childhood. So some years down the line, when I'm older and I start... Uh, earning my own money, I think I remember this book called Incubus and this book is really great, so I want to get this book, but when I look on the likes of Amazon I've seen Incubus by Joe Donnelly and 
It's not this one, but this book has the tagline, what kind of baby would steal a mother? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, I bought that one. And, and again, it is the only book I have read to date that has uh, made my skin crawl. There is a scene in Stephen King's Needful Things, which has made my skin crawl. Yeah. But um, I think that's the scene where his a boy's brother commits suicide and something leaks out the back of his head and it's not right. I thought, well, that's just some weird shit. But <laughs> in, in terms of incubus and what kind of baby would steal a mother, it is... It is a masterclass in pace and dread. And for the skin crawling element, it there, there are some books where for bedroll worse, they, they have the pacing and the setting down, but there might not be, if you like, so much substance to them. It's the atmosphere. The answer to the question, what kind of baby steals a mother? It it's some nasty shit. So yeah, there's um I, I don't avidly or so strongly recommend a, a lot of works, whether it's novels or TV shows or films, but this one, yes. So this has informed the way I write in terms of setting, in terms of pace, in terms of the slow burn, definitely. It is, yeah, hell of a book. Do, yeah. do you ever scare yourself with your with your own do you, you sort of get yourself into a zone where you're like you're, you're writing something and then you just find yourself freaking out because you're like all right okay i need to get my out of my own head now um, it it has happened <laughs> I, I i generally write whenever i get a quiet moment during the day uh in terms of quiet in the household and quiet in the neighborhood and because of how the house is located on the street like near the corner i don't know that's why every once in a while there are people outside who just hang around those street corners and smoke or talk about this that and the third and in one instance i think there was a couple standing outside in the rain talk and i'm thinking it's raining when I kind of take my shots wherever I can when I get that semblance of, of peace and quiet. The, the good thing, and I suppose the bad thing about writing at night, as I'm often wont to do, is when the house is quiet and the neighborhood is quiet, the, the night brings that clarity to things that ordinarily just sit in the background and you gloss over them so when you're writing uh, alone at night and you can hear maybe the occasional passage of a vehicle and you can hear uh, a fox barking maybe a, a street away and given that this is not the newest house in the world there, there might be uh, wind which will rattle the windows in the frame and the odd creaking of the house and, <laughs> and and that kind of stuff. So so the night amplifies those nuances. So there are those occasions when I think, oh, this is some creepy shit. And just like someone in the horror film, I would look over my shoulder, even though I'm I know I'm the only person in the room. I look over my shoulder. Well, I'm writing some weird shit. <laughs> it just be weird or a real head trip if I look around and there's something there that really should not be there but um 
so, so yeah, to answer that question, I I don't necessarily freak myself out as such from from what I write, but there are those instances where, again, especially at night, the, the, the those nuances are, are a lot clearer. They're a lot sharper, and it's um, it's the kind of thing to feed back <laughs> to the work. So yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> That's true. Got a, got, a load, got a load of comments from Josh on the on YouTube. He's of, he just <laughs> says, I'm sorry for the spam comments. I did all uh, my housework and I'm lonely. Well, if you're lonely, Josh, why aren't you on the bloody podcast, you bloody yes. you dingus? It's <sighs> <laughs> um, slightly on topic. Well, it is on topic, but you, you, don't, you, you don't watch horror films. But if I can recommend a film to watch, which is, it's not really horror because there's a, it is and it isn't, but it's called uh, ghost, it's called it's called Ghost <laughs> Stories, yeah, and it's it's by the guy. Um, oh, I forgot his name. Uh, he, he, not, is it Night? No, blood, I can't remember. He basically does uh, the stage show for Darren Brown, and he is one of the League of Gentlemen, but he's not the he's not he's the guy who writes it. He doesn't sort of uh, do the um, he doesn't do the uh, the acting and stuff. And it's basically about a um, a, a skeptic who uh, there was a stage there was a play about it actually there was it's about a skeptic who uh, who goes on to sort of investigate these three ghost stories and it's these guys telling them about these ghost stories and it has one of the best twists at the end and I think it is a genius film absolutely genius and it, it's horror but it's not so it's scary but there's a, there's there's a lot of underlying sort of stuff that links in together and gets tied up at the end and I think it's really if you like sort of kind of mashup type stuff you might you might like it so good so 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 good yeah speaking of mashups it was um, aliens that we first start, start first started talking about and I have to get the story in because it's on point and I'm wearing my Nostromo top for a reason because it's this bastard that made me watch Alien Covenant. I love the Aliens films. They are master... Sorry. Remember when you start this, you have to start with the honest I, truth. I Stop. will, yes. I'd watched all the Aliens films and I'd seen Alien Covenant, like Alien Prometheus and thought it was terrible. Rightly so. I didn't think it was terrible. I think it was watchable. For an an Aliens film, it was terrible. And the stupidity. And then I thought, I'm not going to watch Alien Covenant. But I shared the um, Honest Trailers with (laughs) C.C. Adams here. And he just cracked up, especially with the line of so much flute. So, (laughs) so much flute. And he said, no, no, you've got to watch it. You've got to watch it. And I did. I have not forgiven him since. Just the stupidity of the writing and the, or what the characters do is just uh. like, yes, I'm going to do what you t- say, the psychotic Andrew says, and stick my head in the egg that's just opened up. Yes. Or how come the ship scanners never actually picked up the gigantic floating city? But yes, it's because of C.C. Adams, I... I Watched and bought. I will have. To, I bought the film. Oh. <laughs> I didn't buy it. I bought it. Watched it, and I still don't got my own back. 
So like, oh. I've I've watched it once to, to be honest, but I, I but but I didn't hate it. I thought it, you know I I thought it was better than Prometheus. Oh. I thought it added to the story. Um and yeah, I, again Prometheus I didn't hate either. Um I thought Covenant was a lot better. Um but yeah, I didn't think it was it was bad. It's, it's, it's all about the weird incorporation and how they are, you know, generally, you know, positive but absolutely useless. Their hiring policy must have been abysmal. Utani Corporation come along and basically buy them up. Who and then Utani is, from what we can make out, you know, at least competent but fundamentally evil. Wayland Corporation haven't got a clue. I mean, just they oh, just. Just <laughs> <laughs> the writing starts makes like, why are you doing that? Like again, we go back to the David Android who has gone psychotic, and everyone's just doing what he says because they're absolutely gullible. Like, oh, what's that? Hey, oh, I just have to take a look at it. Okay, and uh, the actor who played the captain in uh, Covenant, he had to, he had to do that uh, scene about five times because every time it happened. The guy kept cracking up because he knew what was coming. <laughs> and I think, if you're doing that, what's all the voice going to be doing? Like, yeah, we know it's coming. Why are you doing that? So, yes. So, Cece, what, what do you think of, of Covenant? You, you made him watch it. Did you make him watch it because you knew it was bad or did you, did you enjoy it? You hate me. <laughs> I, I didn't make him watch it, but... Um... <laughs> I, I can't remember how how this actually came about. He had shown me this um, the honest trailer for for Alien Covenant. Honest Trailers is a a YouTube channel. Uh, the yeah. likes of how it should have ended, which is like a cartoon interpretation <laughs> of the big Hollywood blockbusters, which I like. He's shown me the um, on this trailer for Alien Covenant. I'd already seen Alien Covenant by this point, so I can... Uh, I, I've got context for the honest trailer, and if you haven't seen it, um, I would suggest watch the whole thing. The honest trailer for Alien Covenant is hilarious. The, uh, the other one that I love, which you know, is the one for Predator, and he's all um, he's all out of chewing gum, but we <laughs> I come back to that one. So... <laughs> In the honest trailer for Alien Covenant, they make fun of the flute scene between the the This is a long flute sequence. So much flute, and it's the way that they say it. He says it, and he goes on with it. I remember watching this, and I just pissed myself. I I wept. So when he, um, when Pete's actually showed me this thing, I said, "But this is true. They they're, they're not shitting you. This is how the is." You should see it. And that's how it came about. So he eventually caves and he's seen it. And I, I remember at some point, somewhere down the line, it was some like CC you bastard. Or <laughs> it, it was it was, it was like, succinct, you know, brief and to the point. <laughs> CC you bastard. <laughs> um, I, I don't think the the film was so terrible there, there have been films that i really could not stomach and i just think this is true the amazing spider-man 2 is one of them yes i know i'm wearing a spider-man t-shirt but the amazing spider-man 2 was dreadful shitty film um 
I generally don't rate films that highly, but for me, there was enough in Alien Covenant that even if I couldn't uh, sit down and fully engage from beginning to end, there is enough, for example, like the flute scene, because now I've got context from the Honest trailer. Um, I've also got context for the alien at the end, where in the Honest trailer it says, it's like seeing Batman at the beach. You see an alien in broad daylight. It's, it's something's just undone. Mm-hmm. And there are things in a film on DVD that I can fast forward and rewind and pick out this part, pick out that part. Again, I don't think it is so bad, but it is not so great either. But this is coming from me. So, again, I don't rate a whole lot of films highly as a rule. I know the, the good man Pete with his love of mashups and certainly the, the sci-fi realm of the, of the alien lore. I, I can imagine what a deal break is going to be. All right, fine, I'll watch this alien film. Why did I watch this alien film? This alien film is terrible. So, yes, it's probably more of a thorn in the side for you in terms of that's a couple of hours you'll just never get back yeah so you're 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 a harsh you're a harsh mistress when it comes to sort of your 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 reviews what what is what is the film or the the films that sort of you you go yeah yeah that was amazing that that was awesome i really enjoyed that um i'd say off the top of my head john carpenter's the thing which is my favorite film of all time uh, in any genre, I give a nine out of 10. I don't know any film is gonna be so perfect that I could give it a 10. Um, Limitless is another film I love. That's yeah, an yeah, eight out of Limitless, yeah. That's Bradley Cooper, um, Abby Cornish, I think, and Robert De Niro, yeah. which if memory serves is based on a novella. The series is pretty was pretty good before they cancelled hmm. it, which was a shame. Yeah, it, from what I saw of the series, it, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Yeah. Um, they actually tried to actually do what they did in the, in the film, rather than trying to do a, a cookie cutter script with a few hmm. bits and pieces referencing. They actually tried to bleed off the film and go forward. Yeah, yeah, I think oh. that's what worked for it. I believe Bradley Bradley Cooper has a role in it as a senator who yeah. has an agenda. But he was the same guy, but he'd become a senator. Yeah, he, produ- uh, yes. I think he might have produced it actually. That's why he's sort of in it. Yeah, and I stuff, think yeah. it, it, he pops in here and there, but he was still connected. But it was like moving forward rather than just sort of monster of the week or a police yeah. procedure ball with a few bits and pieces bolted on with a gaffer tape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, have you watched Dog Soldiers by any chance? Oh, I love Dog Soldiers. Because I think that is like that's a horror film, but it's also well, it's it's it's, it's black. A, a soldier. It's a soldier movie with werewolves rather than a werewolf movie with soldiers. But it's just really the really write the soldiers incredibly well. And I've known a few squaddies who've said, yeah, that's how we would react in each different scene. With seafood, they eat it because you don't know when you're going to eat again. Yeah, and and it's all about their own kind of. You look up for your mates, you your buddies. Everyone else comes second. I hope it gives you the fucking shits. <laughs> I love that bit. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not the kind of thing I would make a beeline for because right. elements of horror in there, werewolves. And I, I always thought for all the, if you like, the, the classic movie monsters, as it were, werewolves were some of the mm. ugliest things you could see. Not 
necessarily the the end creature as much as I, I don't like dogs. Maybe that's part of it. Freud could tell me. But um, how how the if you like the elements of the character, there is that something savage underneath the surface. And when they get to that point, there's usually some clothing ripping and this bulges and this comes out and there's blood. And it, the A to B is just ugly and, and uh, it, it's a hideous and horrific thing to see. But uh, yeah. it, it, it scenes in Dodgers. Yeah. One is the... Um, the piss off they won't um that's an order i like yeah. that line and how his intestines will fit back and the other one where there's a, a clawed and hairy arm that is swiping around in a vehicle so yeah. i've not seen any monsters up close because i i am a wuss i yeah dog soldiers has like almost takes the jaws approach where you only see little bits and glimpses of it because they're werewolves to enough. So it's all focused on the soldiers and how they're reacting in each situation. But like that this, makes it so much better in movies. Yeah. Exactly. If well, you never the... show them, people do the hard work for you. Yeah. You don't have to spend 12 grand on a monster suit because the person that's got this stuck in their head, they see little bits, they're going to do 250, 300,000 pounds worth of work for you, all in their head. And it's going to be different for every single person. So no one person's ever going to be immune to it because they're all going to be fucked up in different ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, like, you know, that scene you mentioned of, like, you know, the claw in the vehicle, the soldier's boss is, shiv it! And this is just, like, stabbing it. And, like, okay, it's a world, but it's not... But there's, the thing is, because it's quintessentially a, a British horror film, and you, you yes. can tell the difference between a British yeah. horror film and an American one, because it, 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 there's a lot of comedy in it as well. So there's, like, there's a lot of sort of... There, there's horror, but there's there's that sort of kind of, you know, especially in, in Dog Soldiers, that squatty humour that sort of yeah. take, kind of takes the edge off it ever so slightly and makes it sort of a lot more palatable. Again, I'm a wuss for horror films as well, um, but, you know, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it. I, enjoyed I think good. one of my favourite lines is Sean Pertwee's, uh, like, right, we are up against live, hostile enemy targets. Right, so, so if... Um, if Red Riding Hood comes up comes up to you with a, with a bazooka and a bad attitude, I expected a gender bitch. <laughs> just like, just the way it rolls out. And yes, Sean you Pertwee does not get enough enough acknowledgement. For yeah, how Sean much Pertwee fun is. He is on film. Uh, um, <laughs> I've, yeah, he was fantastic in Event Horizon. Yeah, don't watch, that is really intense horror. That is really, oh God, yeah, yeah, man. Really uh, uh, intense uh, uh, horror. Uh, 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 I've only ever watched that once in the yeah. cinema. I've never ever been willing to watch it again. And friends yeah. told me to go and sing that. 99 wasn't it i went to see it in 99 yeah. and i don't think i ever 97 wa- i say 97 oh was it 97 oh, i remember i never watched it again because it was just like it was the freakiest like i've yeah, seen exactly. uh, it really it sam neil in that film really oh, fucked me God. up <laughs> yeah, sam neil in that film actually gave me nightmares for a couple of days yeah man it's just uh, it's watch it season you'll enjoy it yeah it's <laughs> it's 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 i warn you young man Oh, the, the pinhead bit's better the best, isn't it? Though? Yeah, it's just it's like that film is like I, I a lot of like horror films and stuff, especially so the older ones. You kind of go back and you're just like, oh, it's not as bad. It's a bit tired. Event Horizon still messes with me and stuff. It's just oh like, god, you know, that was just that was the perfect thing though. It was on the right place. Yeah, and they just used the what the, the tools they had. They used so well. Yeah, that it didn't age in the way some do. Yeah, you know some of the films where they use CGI because it was cheaper. 
but oh god no no why did you do that (laughs) (laughs) or they use really tacky miniatures or something yeah sometimes it's shocky and fun like robot jocks that that ages well because it's it's such a little laugh but then there's others where it does not age well the effects are kind of giving themselves away there's one newer Mm. film i've been meaning to watch i haven't got around to what yet called the owners Mm. have you seen about that sylvester mccoy uh no no. It's a low budget one. It looks quite interesting. It's um a bunch of kids try and break into an old couple's house looking for drugs because apparently it was an old it was a doctor or something. And then it becomes a who's locked in the hat trapped in the house with who. Alright, okay. Oh, yeah. That looks like fun because I've just seen the trailer and Sylvester McCoy b- being creepy is just worth it for the whole thing all on its own. <laughs> well <laughs> Sylvester McCoy was creepy when um back in the doctor in the Oh he was nineties. He yeah. was my first doctor. Yeah. yeah, he was my doctor when I, you know. When oh god, yeah. I actually yeah. almost bumped into him very briefly a couple of years back. We were in we were in New York on our honeymoon for Thanksgiving, and we went to Grand Central Terminal, and we were sitting there, we were looking around. We walked out, and my and I was looking at Facebook, and he just checked in there with a picture from 150 yards to our right. Literally, he'd just gone and taken a picture and gone and got on the trains. We'd gone in, had a nosy around and walked out. Yeah. You know, Sylvester <laughs> McCoy is a genuinely lovely man. Um, I interviewed him for SFX magazine uh, a few years ago at uh, Sci-Fi Weekend in the City. And basically, I was in the green room with Sylvester McCoy and Greg McTavish, who was asleep on the couch. And we just had a, 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 um, a half-hour chat just about the Doctor and, yeah. and his approach to it. And he's just such, you know, he's so much time for his fans. Which if, I mean, um, basically at the time, uh, my goddaughters were having a really horrific time. Their mum had been through a, a lot of shit, um, so just health-wise, and you know, um, they just wanted something to cheer up. So I led the youngest, who was like really into Doctor Who, and said, "Like, let's go and meet the doctor." So I led her down to the Q and A, and said, "Okay, like." So initially, he turned to me like, "So, what's your question?" Like, um, don't know. Uh, how are you? <laughs> and then it's like, and then it's like, doctor, this is for you. And so she goes, she goes up to him like, what was your favourite time? What was your best bit about being the doctor? And, and Sylvester McCoy turns to him and goes, meeting you. Oh, he's <laughs> just like, oh. And yeah, and like, she just came like huge grin on her face afterwards. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's that's my little bit done to, to help out a bit. But yeah, I mean, he's such a lovely man. He's always got time for his hand. He's just a natural raconteur and just, yeah, yeah just always kind of ends on a positive note. So yeah. But, um, actually, obviously, you are a Spider Man t shirt. So, Spider Man <laughs> t shirt, Spider Man fan, sorry, where, where that's a t shirt. Um, <laughs> Yeah, stop laughing. <laughs> um, so, have you been watching the, the Marvel films? Um, yes, I. As much as I watch the Marvel films, maybe I'm a purist when it comes to the source material. But very rarely have I found the the films measure up to the source material and i know some will make the argument it's not the same kind of thing I, i'm aware of that but yeah. generally i find they don't measure up only two instances as a whole for me have measured up one is the spectacular spider-man cartoon which yeah. is brilliant it, it is brilliant it's hilarious the 
that, that's a whole other conversation to be honest but suffice it to say that so much of it is sharp and on point the the character uh, characterization is sharp the casting is on point the dialogue is razor sharp the fight scenes are involved original and brilliant and it pays homage to the source material and the Raimi films and I think maybe even the Mark Webb films the other instance for me was in Captain America Civil War where oh. he the web slinger in the MCU. You have a metal arm? That is awesome, dude. Yeah. That, that kind of stuff. The, um, the, the, the classic Spidey, as it were, the, the superhuman strength and the speed and the agility and the immaturity. I don't know if you've been in the fight before, but there's usually not this much talking. <laughs> and for the fans of the wall crawler, they know that is exactly how he is. It is, yeah, that was a joy to see. Have any of you watched this really old film where they had these walkers and you grab the thing around the... Okay, we hate you, my kid. (laughs) The fact that they they have Spider-Man as someone who is not only that much younger, but given, um, if you like, the scheduling of the MCU films when you had... You had Iron Man, you had the Incredible Hulk, and then you got the likes of Captain America, and you got Thor, and then you get Spider-Man further down the line yeah. as a guest in uh, Cap- what is ultimately a Captain America film, you then see not only a younger character, but a, a younger character who has entered this universe that much later, uh, yeah. surrounded by uh, more experienced adults. Yeah. Regardless of the superhuman power that he has, which could arguably, arguably best most of them, if not all of them. Again, that's another conversation. Mm-hmm. But to see him for all of maybe, what, 15, 20 minutes in the MCU and to see them get so much of it right was a joy to see, really, it was. Yeah, I was, um, recently watched Homecoming with my kids and <laughs> we love that film. It's, I mean, it's a great Spider-Man film, but I think what's, what I love about it so much is um, the Vulture. Oh, God. And who's creepy in the, in the suit... But when he's when he's the you know the man behind the suit, mm. um, played by Michael Keaton. Michael yeah. Keaton. Oh, in the kitchen. So the it's far far yeah. more creepier because it feels so much more relatable. Yeah, it's not just the the kid meeting the um, his you know potential girlfriend's dad. It's also the lay of oh. You are the vulture, and he's like playing with that knife, and it just sends chills down your spine. And because in the there's... car, where he says, "I just want to have a quick word with Peter." Yeah. <laughs> and the fact, and like also, but great about it, you sympathise with Michael Keaton's character. Mm. Yeah, because... he's, he's honourable as well. He doesn't give him away at the end, that, does he? That, that last scene, yeah. yeah. But also, also like what happened to him at the start when he's kind of like you know, when damage controlling come in and said, "We're taking over your contract." And my kid's going to go, well, no, I can't. I've just invested money in this contract. You can't just take it from me. And said, too late, we are. And I thought, oh, I can relate to that. Yeah, I'd feel pretty pissed off of that as well. I think that's why it's a really good film for me. But, yeah, I mean, what what was your take on it? Um, Well, to be fair, I... I, I didn't rate it too high. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it's fair enough each to their own. Yeah. But the one of the criticisms I have of, of Homecoming, and the same goes against the Incredible Hulk, as much as there was much in that film I liked, I I, I never understood why you would want to keep the look of the hero the same as the source material, mm. but why you would have such a radical departure for the villain, because they are equally iconic. Again, bearing in mind the source material in the, uh, the character of Adrian Toomes, who is the vulture. Yes. I would have liked to have seen is not... I mean, there, there, there are costumes in the source material that wouldn't necessarily work in in a live action film, especially given that the source material is what maybe some forty or at least fifty years old, or or at least there. Um, take the Falcon for example. Now, in the comics, his <laughs> was uh, let's just say a, a little more outlandish, maybe a, a little more village people. But the seventies, wasn't it? Exactly, exactly. But the way that the costume looks now, it is it it, it is functional. It yeah. makes yeah. Um, I cannot see with the vulture why such a radical departure for the costume would have been a consideration. The same way that I can't see them to have Iron Man feature so heavily in the mix of that film would have been a consideration. Mm-hmm. What I would have thought, given, if you like, the the scope of, of Spider-Man's superhuman ability, again, his strength, his speed, his durability, let's not forget his spider sense, which alerts him to danger and, and precognitive, all that good stuff. So to start him off against a relatively tame and easy villain who is ruthless would have given the wall crawler's character a chance to develop. And it would have also focused on how really ruthless the vulture is Mm -hmm. that the fact that such opportunity was lost in the film was one of the things i didn't like about that it's disappointing for you Mm. yeah i can't help but think that with um, the spider-man films especially the bits that we enjoyed were kind of in spite of there being so many clashes between the two the two studios and that tug of war because Mm. it was very much Sony wanted to do things their way. Marvel needed it to work with what they'd already done, and they already had that huge long tail for it. And it, it ended up being a compromise, which is carried very well by some good writing, by some good writing yeah. and great performances. But as you said, for if for someone who is, you know, if if you're really attached attached to the um, source material, there are places where they have quite frequently said. It's you know they've done closer to the ultimate universe and the classic universe, but they've been picking and choosing. They've just in in the same way that Star Wars have done, and that's going to start off now, but slightly more successfully. <laughs> yeah, I'll not go into that. Yeah. I'll not, I'll not open up that can of worms. <laughs> oh, well, have, did you third ever rail, watch the Spider-Man rail. cartoon from the eighties? I've uh, seen Spider-Man Friends, which oh, had this God, character called the sw- which called the Swarm. That yeah. character chills me to this day. I don't know what it is about the swarm, but he just really kind of just sends shivers down my spine. I I always thought that was a, a little freakish, not so much yeah. the character of the swarm, but I think at some point 
uh, with whatever power he had, he was creating um, like insect zombies, and people had the bug eyed look, and yeah. they had dinner. And I thought, now this is some freakish shit. <laughs> That 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 is what what really got to me, yeah. and and I'm I'm grateful you mentioned Spider Man, his amazing friends, because for all the various iterations of the character that I have seen and all the comics I have, several hundred uh, original issue, one of my favorite fights is in that cartoon. Oh. Do you remember one which is Attack of the Arachnoid, where this scientist Zoltan Amadeus. Uh, needed money to fund his research. So he created a serum that gave him Spider-Man's powers, but it didn't stay stable. This is the one with the scorpion in it. Okay. And so Spider-Man is arrested for Zoltan's crimes. But what then happens is, with his web shooters taken away, Spidey is in prison, but he's in a cell next to the scorpion. And the scorpion breaks into his cell and they have a fight because Spidey doesn't have his web shooters. He's trying to stay alive. The scorpion's coming after him. So you see him at the beginning of the scene. He's pacing around the cell. You know, when people are pacing, they walk up and down. He's the wall crawler. So he just walks around in a circle and the wall blows in and the scorpion storms in and the tail lashes up behind him. It's the least of your worries, Spider Man. <laughs> and you just know it's about to kick off. I love that fight. Always have done. Last time I watched it was probably a few months ago. I love it. Yeah. What do you? I think. I think. Yeah. I think quite a few people kind of um, pick up on the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse film. What would your take on it? The, the which one? Into the, the Spider-Verse. Spider the animated one. Um. I really enjoyed that. I must admit. The, the, the thing is, I, I suppose, and uh, I hold up my hand and say, maybe I am, I am something of a purist. I oh. I was not... I, I thought it was okay. I saw the film when it came out. But having seen it a few times since then, it, it has it has grown on me. There, there, are, there, there are elements of the film that I can... We can really get behind like Miles arc when um after the the, the the slobbish Peter has webbed him up and left him and he remembers the worst it's just a leap of faith and he takes that leap of faith and you see him comfortable in his powers so when he starts to swing through the city you realize that he he now realizes I can do this I will do this I'm going to do this the the web swing when they when they're getting away from Dark Ark and they've got this big chunk of high five between them and whip it out and whip it out. And there there are moments like that which are just beautiful. So the more I watch it and the more I, I see the chemistry between the characters and I, I watch the nuances in, in the arc. It's it's yeah. I I was I suppose I was maybe resistant at first, yeah. but yeah, I, I can see the film for what it is. It's a very, very solid effort at just that, creating the Spider-Verse. So, yeah, pleasant surprise by that. Which they're going to bring into live action with Tobey Toby Maguire, uh, Andrew Garfield, and obviously Tom Holland in the new, yeah, new Spider-Man. Uh, yeah. Uh, I still yeah. wish we'd had that um, 
that that rumored um, Deadpool credit sequence they were going to do, where you had all the actors hiding out in Deadpool's um, flat, um, hiding from Sony. Have you never heard about that? He <laughs> no. wanted to do an end credit sequence for the one of the, for the next Deadpool film, where he came out in, where where he comes into the flat, and you've got like Andrew Garfield sitting on on the um, sofa, eating cereal, and then um, Tobey Maguire comes wandering through. And in, in like his in like his boxer shorts and a, and a pair of socks and a t-shirt and like sort of hey and then it's like this whole idea that they're in the the, the Sony protection program so they can't hunt them down and finish them off. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I really liked about Into Spider Verse was just like the, the sense of motion the animation yeah. brought to the um, yeah. film because I think I don't think ever none of the films ever really captured that sense of swinging down and up that sense of motion shots in some in uh, the early Sam Raimi was, they did have a couple of really good shots yeah. that they never really followed up on which did yeah. have that rush i think but i think it was more if you watched it on the big big screen with yeah. those ones i was quite lucky I, I i ended up in the right that, that sweet spot for a couple of the early films where everything's just in the right place and the screen's all around you but you're just low enough that you get a bit of vertigo when they do things like those big dropping screen, dropping shots, and you feel the rush of them swinging. Yeah. But... The the end of the first Spider-Man film with um oh, directed by Sam Raimi. Oh yeah, that. Where Peter Parker's walking away from Mary Jane in the graveyard, the the final swing, and with Danny Elfman's score, and I believe this is what the I forget. I forget what he did, but one of the production team by the name of John Dixter had something that they called the Dixter Cam, which is basically a camera on on a cable or a, or a rig that they can hike up or just drop down how many stories as quick as they like. And then they put the character of Spider-Man on, on the surface of that, as it were. So the final swing at the end of the Spider-Man film, you see him swing down to street level he swings alongside cabs and he swings mm. up and he runs off the side of a building and the yeah. camera pans around him you yeah. see the sun behind him oh god yeah and it ends with him ends up with him swinging up to a flagpole and and he drops on the side it's just mm. it, it it is straight from the source material yeah one of the things i like from the Raimi franchise how they captured the swing yeah, mm. yeah. Well, Raimi's got that. Raimi's really good for doing that kind of point of view, kind mm. of shots, and those really kind of, I wouldn't say weird, but the kind of the really kind of unique shots that Raimi's famous for. If you ever watch any of his films, he's kind of got the really kind of unique directorial style. It, it is the you, you're you're right. It's in terms of the the visual interpretation. Yeah. It? Like the even for the trailer for for the second film, the the teaser trailer starts with the two of them, Peter Parker Park and Mary Jane in the diner. The do you love me or not? And she says, "Kiss me." And she leans in and oh, with the car, wasn't it? Goes off with the car coming up behind yeah. him. And the only thing that's missing is the squiggly lines of spider sense around yeah. him. If you were to put that's that panel into a comic that's what you would see the eyes wide and you can imagine saying spider sense incoming and the cars coming up behind him and even the way 
the less the the rest of the teaser is uh, is laid out. So when he is near the end of the trailer, he's swinging through the canyons of New York, and the camera pans back until it's in Ock's Islands, and Ock. It pans back from him, and he turns and he climbs up the face of the clock. Yeah, all, all of that visual, that visual narrative—that's what you would expect from Raimi. He has that that sense of flair, drama, how, however you want to describe it. Motion, He's, almost motion. Yes. The, the hospital scene in Spider-Man 2 is, is a classic example. Yeah. And what, what, what I found really interesting about that was apparently this was in the early stages of filming because they decided they're going to use practical effects for the tentacles. Um, yeah, in some instances, they might need to resort to CGI, but they, they very much wanted the practical, realistic look. So the hospital scene, as I understand it, was a tryout to see how the tentacles would look if they were not done by CGI. And the scene was that effective. It was just that mind-blowing. They said, we're keeping it. And and you, you can see from, again, his visual sense that the hospital staff don't realize something is going wrong. And then one of the tentacles attacks uh, one of the nurses and then someone else screams and then the tentacles come to life and they're chasing people through the dark. And yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that kind of visual sense, even when it goes up close into somebody's eye, like, that's right there. It's yeah. I, I wouldn't have thought, that it could look so effective, but yeah. but it does. Yeah, I must say I do like Spider-Man too, just for the Doctor Octopus and the Tower of the Tentacles and how you know, just basically it's just the visual flair of that really brings yeah. that um, film. Not, yeah. Definitely, there's a there was One an amazing liking that, which is so small and simple, and again it pays homage to to the source material is after Peter has had a shitty day, he's lost his powers and Ox got away and he's losing his eyesight and he throws the paper away. Doc is starting to build his machine, but he's got his goggles on. He reaches for a cigar with one tentacle and he lights it with the other one. And that that's just a classic Ox pose. Yeah. Him with the goggles and the cigar. Mm. It's just fucking great. Apparently, he's coming back in the uh, yeah. the live action uh, multiverse. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Alfred yeah. has been. Uh, I'd seen uh, along with the um the, the memes that Ke- Kevin Feige was going to tear him a new one because um Melina was supposed to keep shit under wraps. I, I don't know how true it is, but um. But to see that doing around, always away with memes. You'll find one or two which are just hilarious. Mm. Yeah. Or knock, or I'll be back, or or whatever the case. (laughs) Okay. Carry on, Pete. Yeah. I look at you. Have you have you been watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Oh yeah. I haven't seen um... it. I haven't seen it yet. By the way, so just. I will say it's very good. Well worth watching. Definitely. Okay. I, I'm I'm not blessed enough to have uh, Disney or Disney Plus, whatever it is. But yeah. from 
people who have seen it and they tell me, well, have you seen this? Have you seen that? I hear good things about that. Okay, I, I enjoyed it. It's, I mean, I'm going to be controversial and see it's even better than, for me, it's even better than WandaVision because it's exploring the ramifications of the snap uh, by Thanos and also the legacy of the shield and what it means for um, Sam Raimi to, Sam Raimi? Sam Wilson, sorry, to be uh, Grant given it. And it's just, yeah. it's a really well done story, exploring the ramifications of what all of this all means for the greater world. And yeah, it's re- built, it builds up and yeah, really well worth watching. I think yeah, it's very interesting, but the, the contrast you draw to, to WandaVision is weird because WandaVision was... Very, 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 WandaVision was very personal. Yeah, it was. It, it's it a very, for, for all that it has so many people in it, as it does, it is very much focused About on the one person. Wonder. Whereas, you know, Cap, whereas Captain and whereas um, Falcon and Winter Soldier, while it do, does have the two leads, it's more using them as a lens to look at the world rather than looking at them as much. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, also they are tonally and genre-wise quite different. One division yeah. is a character study. Uh, Falcon and the Wilkes Soldier is a spy thriller, essentially. Oh, gotcha. Much like uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. Uh, was essentially it wasn't a superhero film, it was a spy thriller. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah, and so basically, what what I've heard recently as well is Captain America Four is going to be written by the same team yeah. behind um, the Falcon and Winter Soldier because they just basically pulled off. Oh god, like, yeah, they they uh, the got it. Yeah, they, they, they pulled off what the legacy means of Captain America. But, how yeah. can be, how can it be another Captain America film if he's all old and retired now? Um, you watch the TV series, don't you? Well, I, I I know the sort of kind of because I know the Captain. I mean, I know Winter Soldier at one point takes up the shield. And I know that Sam uh, the Falcon takes yeah. up the shield at some point in time as well. In so. the comics, oh, it's like, in the comics, Captain America is is not is, is more of a title than a character. Well, it's become, hasn't it? Because they've had a lot yeah. of battles and forwards. Because in the comics, he was assassinated. He, has, at one point. he was assassinated. He's stepped down and been depowered. Yeah. There is other things. So they've had a few different versions hence you've had us agent you've had the winter soldier as captain america you've had falcon as a winter soldier uh, as uh, captain america sorry as well with his own sidekick who is falcon but a different falcon which ties back to some of the casting in the series as well so there's lots of in stuff in there but it's their way of taking it taking at it but it also it's interesting. It looks at PTSD from two different ways as well, doesn't it? Yeah. With two of the lead characters. But it also brings Wakanda into the into the thing in sort of, in a way, sort of that first gentle dip into the pool in the post... Um, snap. Yeah, in the post yeah. snap, also in light of there is no Black Panther anymore in the real world with, you know, with the death of the actor and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chadwick so, yeah, I lost the name. You know, it's when you can't find the word. Yes. So it's interesting. They're looking at, you know, it's a way to look at the characters around him, and sort of give us some, give people thinking about it, in a way other than just he's gone. It's the fact that they had all those vibrant characters they built around him, and the smaller casts and stuff like that that work quite well. All right. Well, um, we should maybe carry on talking about your books <laughs> we've spent a long time talking about yeah. spider-man <laughs> we do. We, yeah. we do. 
I think I warned you we are very informal and I'll give them to um Deviation. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are you working on right now anyway? Um, I am working on the next novel. I have done my I've done my writing stint for the day. The the novel is currently at 37,000 words. I'm running a little behind schedule. I had planned to to finish the novel by the end of this month. I think to be fair, the novel first draft at least should be finished by the end of next month. While there are some inconsistencies and plot holes in there, at this point I don't really care. I just want to get the draft down. At least it's that way I've got it's the first but, draft at the end of the day, isn't it? Exactly. So from from the point of view of me always working, the first thing is to get the drafts down. Um, uh, and if you've ever seen the first Deep Blue Sea film, I didn't even realise that there was a franchise. When um, they need to... This is near the end of the film, when they send the... They send the oxygen tanks to the surface to distract the sharks. Mm. This is pretty much how I see the writing process. Finish the draft and get out quick. Yeah. So to that end, it's like I was typing with my feet, like, (laughs) I want to finish the draft and get out quick. It is sloppy with typos. It's going to be words of at least 11 letters and maybe two vowels in there. <laughs> I, I, I don't care how shitty it looks. Is it a finished draft? Yes or no? Just one or the other. Yeah. So that's what I am currently working on. The novel that I had written toward the toward the end of last year, I think this was. Um, I'm waiting for one other beta reader to give me that draft back. Then I need to get that one cleaned up to give back to the publisher who is already contracted for that one i have a novella that i am i'm still waiting for a response on and i'm already doing the groundwork for my next project which will most likely be a collection and actually it was only this evening in fact that um I made a new connect to give me a hand with the basic research and um, and the themes and setting the tone of the collection. So, yeah, I should have a talk with them tomorrow just to brief them, give them an idea of what I'm about, what I'm looking for. It's not that I would necessarily start now, but my um, for, for the stuff that I do, People's lives don't revolve around me, so I'm mindful to book in time as early as possible, as it were. Yeah. I won't start work on this book until, I would guess, June, to be realistic. But at the same time, I want to get people up to speed and book in time with them ahead of schedule. So that's what this move is about. And that's just what I have on the go for the moment. You are an absolute machine, sir. <laughs> yeah, fucking hell, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I think it's a compliment. But um, when, when I think of the machines, as it were, I think of people very much like like Paul Kane. I mean, yeah. to be oh, fair, yeah. I, I'm not sure whether it's right to say that he writes full time, but where some people would have day jobs, as far as I'm aware, he doesn't have that kind of obligation. Yeah. Yes, he's a full-time writer and as one of the joint heads of 
the UK chapter of the HWA, the Horror Writers Association. He has certain responsibilities that he and his wife, Marie, need to look after. But he is very much a machine, whether it is him writing in the vein as horror, whether he is writing crime, he writes under a slightly different name for that. And, of mm -hmm. course, the HWA admin duties and all, all, all that kind of stuff. So when I think of machines, I think of people like him, like uh, like Dave Jeffries. Is, is, oh, is yeah. he, he's a machine and also one of the nicest guys in, in, in the indie business. He's someone else I owe another bear hug to. And I don't think I even, I don't think I even seen him up close since not 2019, but probably the one the one before. That was Sledgelit you're thinking about. 20, uh, Christmas 2018, the lit, the Christmas themed writers festival in Derby. No, 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 no. There, oh, there, oh. definitely a fancy con. And I can tell oh. you on this was. This was a fancy con in Chester. I oh. remember because now thinking back on it, there's, there's a picture with the four of us in. There's me, there is Dave. There is Lisa Childs, as in Ross, Ross's sister, Ross Warren, and um, and Peter Mark May. So the four of us in this. I remember now. This was at the Fancy Con in Chester. So this might have been. I could go into Facebook now, but I can't <laughs> be bothered. Um, I'm guessing this might have been about maybe three, four years yeah. ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, the time that I'd most recently seen him, I think, this is why I remember, and I know he remembers it. He was supposed to do a reading on the panel. He was running late. I forget where he came from. And I think I might have had to cover for him, not just to make up some bullshit excuse, just, you know, Dave's, Dave's on his way here, but this has happened, this has happened. He said, do X, Y, Z. It was that kind of thing. And... He came and did the reading, and as is always the way when you're at these conventions, you want to make time to speak to X person for maybe a few minutes, and then you see Y person, you speak to Y, and then Z is there, and you speak to Z, and it's Z, give me a minute, I need to go back to X, and you look for X, and X is gone, and by the time you're ready to see X, it's time to go, is that kind of thing. So I'd seen him briefly the last time. He got away from a bear hug, which is not nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, what you're saying, I think... I remember uh, Mark Shodbon once said to me, like, no, uh, 50% of all business is done at conventions, probably in the bar. <laughs> and it's all that networking you do. Oh, I've got to chat to this person, see that person, that person over there. And as you build up these connections and get to know people and they get to know you. And yeah. then, oh, well, okay, okay. I think um, my very first published story, um, the Sound of Latex was this comic fancy tale that I wrote. It's great. Out of basically, what happens when you put? Well, it's all about through Fox Spirit Publishing by Adele. Oh, okay. And this theme was like uh, from the first uh, collection they did, um, Tales of the Nun and Dragon. And the caveat, like you could publish uh, any type of genre, fan be it fantasy, science fiction, horror, it already had to have. Uh, it had to do a nun and or a dragon. So I thought, <laughs> so I thought I know, I'm going to have a latex nun <laughs> in a fancy setting going to get a dragon. 
And basically, what and basically like exploring what happens what on the dragon quest? What how can a knight go up against a dragon with what is basically a toothpick? <laughs> and so this is what we and I just basically turned to Adele, I could do that. And she went, Oh, yeah, sure, do it. Send me, send me your story and I'll see it. And she published it. <laughs> it's, it's my type story. What are you doing with your microphone? Sorry. Having <laughs> mentioned the convention, I, I, will, I will tell you, I will remind you one of my favorite memories of you. This one you all know. You know the one I'm going to say, I'm sure. But. We were we were we were at an edgelet, yes. Yeah. And I'm talking I'm talking to you to Dion and Ben. <laughs> um for, for, for Dion is uh, a freelance editor. He's largely recognizable from his bald head and the the biggest, sexiest tash and goatee combo that you could think of. The the same way that people recognize the likes of John McCruick because of that distinct look and that facial hair. Dion is one of those people. The other one is um, a guy by the name of, of Ben who writes horror and Western and crime. Crime stuff is pretty brilliant. But anyway, I'm sat with these two opposite me there. We're all in, in engaged in converse. I can see the hallway in the background. I see this good man, Pete, just jogging up in the hallway. And I don't know what it is, but from the look on his face, I can see that Pete is about to start some shit. So, 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 so me, Leon and Ben walking away, and Pete comes up behind, I think it's Dion. You know, I've got the, I got the picture. I can't even remember. You come up behind either Dion or Ben. I mean, Dion. I'm inclined to think it was Dion. And while I've taken a picture, I think this is why you run up because I was taking a picture. But while I'm talking to the two of them, they're posing for a picture. Pete is behind Dion's head like this. <laughs> and what I remember is I've got the camera like this. I'm trying this not to piss myself laughing. And in the middle of all of it, I took three pictures. And I don't know how I managed it, but all <laughs> of it was straight. Progressive thing of Pete in the background, Pete even closer, Pete behind Dion's head, Pete behind Dion's head, Pete behind Dion's head, and then Dion has looked around. Are you joke. The Joker, that is, this is Peter Ray Allison. That's me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I said, I saw, like, from my side, I saw you getting your photo to take a photo of Dion and Ben, and I thought, this is too good a chance to miss. So I just legged it over. <laughs> and just, Dion was completely oblivious. I was going, and I've got some great photos. I mean, why he doesn't use them on his, on his website, full frontal, I do not know. It's, you know, it's a crime against uh. humanity. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. The other picture I've seen of Dion, which is, is really disturbing, and, and I'm sure you must have seen this one by now. It is a picture of him and Phil Sloan, but their heads are superimposed, or their faces are superimposed on 
a couple of, if you like, Neanderthal cave people. <laughs> but they're both stripped to the waist as, um, as cave people might be, like the grass skirt. And one of them has drooping female breasts. And I think it, I think and and to look at this picture of of whoever whoever it was with breasts. Something about that picture is just really disturbing. Yeah, I'm disturbed already. I don't even know the picture. Drippy, drippy Neanderthal boobs are, are generally a sort of a bad thing in general. <laughs> There are some things you just can't answer. <laughs> I mean, um, one thing we want to ask was like, you know, um, I know some writers have kind of a love-hate relationship with conventions. Though some writers just do not like them, they'll go to them, but kind of um, oh. of a necessity or duty than anything else. I mean, I, got, I mean, for me, it's more of I like going, I like doing the business, I like going there and meeting people because. I'm a freelance journalist, so I don't just do my business at the desk. So it's for me to go out and see fellow writers and journalists and just get get to speak to people. I mean, what's your take on conventions as a whole? Um, I mean, for me, it is it is it's pretty much a necessary evil. I'm not going to say it's necessary for everybody, but in terms of not only promoting myself but promoting my craft, it is very much a necessary evil and it's as you said before it is a good way to 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 meet people i mean i was in i was in a collection that steve shaw brought out i think it was last yeah last year um the great british horror volume five from black shot books so the way that that came about that discussion was this would have been the not last year, so convention before. I think this was the one in Clydesdale, which for me felt like the arse end of nowhere. I'm sure it's a very nice place, but it really was a hop, skip, and a jump in the mission to get there. So I think it was one morning or one afternoon. I'm in the bar with, I think actually, I think Stuart Hotston might have been there, which is which is noteworthy because he's in the collection as well, but. I think it was me, uh, Steve, Stuart, and um, and Rio Ewers. But at some point, when I think the other two had gone up, Steve then turns to me and says, "I've never invited you into this collection, have I? No. Do you want to be in the next one? Yeah, sure. Why not? And <laughs> as involved as that. And he says, "All right, fine. At some point in the near future, I will." shout basic terms and we'll go on from there and and that was it <coughs> so, you, you're right when you say that some some business is done in the bar this is one of the things i like about conventions is for me it's not only a way to to meet people but in addition to like finding finding businesses where well, finding opportunities it is Beyond that, and more importantly, it's a chance to connect with the like-minded. Uh, yeah. Not every genre has the the same approach that you do. Not everyone has the same uh, artistic sensibilities that you do. Not, not everyone has the same uh, level of drive as you do. But um, for for my part, it is 
regardless of marquee value or perceived marquee value as it oh you must be big yeah you must be a, a you're famous i there there was um someone that i i'd met on holiday uh, a couple of couple of years or so ago who who seemed somewhat let's let's say miffed it wasn't anything major but in the nicest way possible just miffed as in i i didn't realize you were famous or some such and maybe i should have maybe i should have got into some more conversation and still speak to them speak to her but regardless of what your marquee value is or is perceived to be i'm very much of the mind that regardless uh i want to bring i i come with professional intent i'm sure there are some people who when when they write it's okay well i'll write something now and if it's rejected by a publisher, then okay, I'll leave it for a while and then I'll try and send it to someone else or I'll try and write another one. And I don't knock those people for their approach because that's their approach if that's what they're comfortable with. But I am very much of the mind that when I write in an ideal scenario, my audience is going to love my work. If they love my work, then they're going to want more. What takes me, say, maybe three months to write, they would ideally read in a fraction of the time. So I need to keep writing to keep up. The more work that I produce and the more work that I keep moving in terms of I'm writing something, I've got something sent out to a publisher, I am currently engaging in edits with this particular publisher, the more work I keep moving, the more business I generate, the more business I'm likely to generate. So... Yeah, I I definitely keep that shit moving. Do you ever get writer's block? Do you ever get to a point where you're just literally, I can't do this, I need to stop for a minute? I I really don't. And this is one of the things that I am am not only grateful for, but this actually informs how I write. Because the the muse, as I often refer to her, um, the same way that Dexter Morgan from Dexter has his dark passenger, I have the muse who is, if, if you like, the the dark angel on my shoulder, who is adamant that I write and I keep delivering the goods. And every so often on the likes of Twitter, there is a meme where it is Firuza Bolt from The Craft when she goes, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. And that's how my muse reacts to me if I've not written for a while. <laughs> okay. The, the muse, whatever form she takes, is is for the most part very good to me in that I all nearly always have those ideas and I'm just writing to keep up to be honest um it, it, it used to be a thing before the advent of smartphones that um where whenever I had an idea for a story I'd have to scribble it down on the back of a receipt I think maybe once I've used the steam in the bathroom mirror not like I, I I ran the hot water taps and waited for steam, but it's you know I've got the the gist of the elevator pitch or maybe just the phrase or a couple of words that brings to mind what the story will be about and just write it somewhere, write it anywhere. When people renew their phone contracts and they get a new handset, they might do away with the handset. I actually have my old handsets because the notepad app on the phone has all those elevator pitches and ideas for stories where, again, as soon as I get the idea, I make a note of it. Um, yeah. Some ideas speak to me more than others. Uh, even 
for the ideas that I actually end up writing the story, they don't necessarily um, speak to me the way that I thought they would when they were in my head before they hit the page. But I, I know a lot of people who, who write may have a thing about writer's block. The words won't come. If the words come, they won't come correct. But regardless, I have never been one of those as in I have writer's block. Even if the words won't come as smoothly as I would like, the words still hit the page. But it is not open for debate. Yeah. Good yeah, discipline. I found that, you know, sometimes just case of writing, it doesn't have to be writing what you want to be writing, mm. just sometimes just writing down something, anything, something else yeah. entirely will actually just give you a, um, a chance for your left hand brain to kind of take a break while you're just writing something out, then switch back over and see about what's going on and see if that's kind of kickstarted anything. I mean, yeah. typically sometimes like when I'm like, I've got emails on the go, I've got articles on the go, I'm pitching out to some, revising another, writing a third, and it's all about kind of, well, okay, if I'm not in the mood for that, I'll do something else, and it's kind of keep them all up level, and keep moving with all, yeah, all of them. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess it's like dancing it all out, really. It is. Uh, and it comes back to something that, you, you, that you've just mentioned. When when I write, yes, I might have more than one idea at a time, but I can only write one thing at a time. Yeah. For the people who can work on this novella and then this short story and then this short story as well, and maybe this novel, that level of multitasking is simply beyond me, something I can't slash won't do. Um, if, for me, it is enough of a struggle just to write. But the bottom line is, it, it for me, it's the writing. The writing is what makes all of it possible. Cool. Right. Um, I think we're gonna have to leave it here uh, because I've got to. I've got to get an early night. I've got I, IKEA <laughs> are turning up for my new house tomorrow at uh, seven o'clock in the morning. So I've got to get up <laughs> stupidly early. And my girlfriend isn't letting me off with. Um, I apparently have to make with the two hours before I start work. I've got to make flat pack. So I've literally spent <laughs> my last week, last two weeks, making flat packs, putting up shelves, mm -hmm. making more flat packs. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible day tomorrow. I know it. Flat pack followed <laughs> by work. Um, be pack. Before we go, is there is there anything? Uh, is there any websites or any anything you've got going, or you know, you're, you're sort of you what you, you want to tell people about? Um, yes. Yeah, so I suppose my my website is www.ccadams.com. Um, I have recently finished a stint of um, Q&As called Game Talk, which is game, how people do what they do. So that has finished the beginning of this month. All the uh, Game Talk Q&As are on there. I will be back in control of my journal from next month. The website, again, ccadams.com on facebook is facebook.com forward slash mr adams writes on twitter it's similar as well twitter.com forward slash mr adams writes and yeah i'm i'm always happy to to hear from those who like horror whether it's those who uh, read the books or watch the tv shows or watch the films 
regardless of the fact that I currently only read the books. And even now, I can't read the books too often. But <laughs> I would like and all the rest of it. I, I, I'm always... I'm always open to that kind of talk around the horror narratives. It is, yeah, I love them. It's it's that that level of villainy that you wouldn't get in the likes of of, of the Lion King or or Cinderella. Which, which which is it? I mean, let, let, let's be fair. Uh, Scar killed his brother. That's that that's some dark shit. Yeah, it is pretty dark. <laughs> but the horror film take that villainy to. Uh, a more insidious level. That that that's all there is to it. So, yeah, for 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 the connoisseurs of the genre and the those who are the the avid fans, as it were, by all means, hit me up and engage in conversation. It is always good to talk with with the other fans, which is what I am. I just happen to be an author as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure, uh, Cece. Uh, it's been yeah. an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, giving us your time tonight. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's been great. Um, for tonight, I've been Matt Geary. With me has been Peter Ralston. Good night, everyone. And take care of each other. Mark Canty. Take care, everybody. Have a good week. And our guest, Cece Adams. Thanks, people. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.